The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Welcome to the Brandon Peters Show and a weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. And as always with me on this summer long journey from Forbes, Scott M- M- Mendelson. Happy to be back. Yeah, I was hopefully the charm. Third time, the third yeah. Third one, yeah. Multiples of three will always be the charm for yes. this journey. Uh, this episode, we'll be looking at the weekend of May twenty first through twenty third, and uh, we're this has been fun. This is fun. I think this is going to be one of the meteor weeks uh, that we have. We've got a Death Wish esque movie that uh, isn't very not available to find, and. We will probably talk why maybe it is. A, I had to slit a few throats to get it. Yes. Uh, we've got a, like, experimental film from a comedic pair. And then we have uh, just an action classic film that was pivotal. And uh, this weekend, uh, I'm going to note up top, limited release. Annie came out this weekend, but we're shifted annie to its wide release so we'll discuss annie in june uh when it was opened to more theaters but it did open like to 12 screens i think on this weekend i think scott so I'm not we're sure. discussing annie tomorrow yes it's only a day away <laughs> uh yeah um <laughs> that's that's good uh <laughs> yes it's it's a hard podcast life for us something oh we're just gonna bomb this episode bad bad uh but yeah that's this week uh this is i i'm really looking forward to this week and this week was like okay this is gonna be fine and then i watched when i watched the film so i'm like oh we got things to talk about this week i like it really does and the road warrior which will be at the end is probably the most boring one for us to talk about that's how good this episode is going to be uh so as always we start off with what's going on in the news this week it's the news of the moment in uh, 25 minutes our monday film is an unusual western set at the end of the american civil war first an extended edition of the nine o'clock news Good evening. At the United Nations, the peace talks are underway again, but there's also a lot of talk tonight about how much longer before the order is given to reoccupy the Falklands. Mrs Thatcher said this may be the last chance for a peaceful settlement, and we should know before the end of the week whether or not it will succeed. During this week, the Unification Church founder Rev Sun Myung Moon was convicted of tax evasion. Uh, the BBC warned that Britain will bomb Argentina during this week. There was some military action from the UK during this time, too. Colin Wilson rode a surfboard 294 miles. It's a lot of water. 
And born this week, we have two two people born. Tony Parker, known for his the Frenchman uh, for the San Antonio Spurs, where he won multiple championships with Tim Duncan under Coach Greg Popovich and Manu Ginobili, that part of that group. He was born this week. And Tay Zonde, uh, the YouTuber known for Chocolate Rain, he was born on this week in 1982, meaning I'm older than them. And so is Scott. Thieves, pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers. Beware. Oh, you tell your friends to stay out of this neighborhood. Oh, you're real tough, huh? When I come back, I don't want to find you here. If I do, I'm going to redecorate your face. John, you cannot go around shooting up bars. But this thing is bigger than what the police can do. John D'Angelo will do anything to make his neighborhood safe. He's fighting back. Rated R. Stars Friday, National Westwood, Hollywood, Hollywood, and theaters and drive-ins. Our first movie this week, Fighting Back. This is uh, directed by Louis Teague, written by Thomas Headley Jr., David Zalag Goodman, and starring Tom Skerritt, Patti Lapone, Michael Sarazen, and Yafet Kodo. It's a hard crime story about Philadelphia shop owner who has had enough of the criminals' violences and ravages. He organizes a patrol of civil people. It all starts to go wrong because... His team's actions are taken as racial discrimination. Spoiler, they kind of are. I want to say this. I, I I nicknamed this movie, Scott, Tone Deaf Wish. <laughs> for the record, and I, I'm, I'm only making fun of you just for the sake of our entertainment value, I've never heard the phrase violences before. Violences, yes. Uh, that was the what the, the tagline was that I pulled. I didn't write that. So really? I'm just reading copy. Yes. Was, uh, Someone wrote out violences. I believe that was on the back of the VHS box. Oh. From which I need to mention this so far in our journey, this was the hardest film to find. And this I'm trying to do things with this as legit as possible in finding and watching the films. And like I do the the show anyway. This film, I went down a rabbit hole, could only find the trailer thanks to a friend of the show. We were able to access this movie this was potentially a movie we weren't going to be able to see but we found it it was only ever after its theatrical run it was only ever released on vhs in the united kingdom it was never released on home video here and it no laser disc no dvd no it's not ripped from somewhere on youtube it's not torrents aren't sitting around with this thing i had i had to call in some favors and i got us a copy to watch for this episode so so far we're going strong we haven't missed a movie if there are hard ones to find in the future that you might know of and you want to help us out we are more than willing to take the help because we want to have as complete of journey as we can if you get caught never heard of you yeah yeah we we don't we don't fucking know you we don't know you at all you are captured and or killed we will disavow any knowledge of your existence right the in the UK it was called Death Vengeance, not Fighting Back. Um, we'll say that. Scott it sounds like a pick one from column A, one from column B kind of title, right? Death Vengeance. Okay, that works. Yeah, they took Wish from us, so uh, <laughs> Death flip a coin in the pond. No, um, well, it's it's no alligator. I'll tell you that much. No, no. So, I what what is exactly the intent of the author in this movie? Like I, w- I couldn't like 
I don't know if I can tell. I don't know. I I think it's maybe not the good guy. I don't know. I think there's a there's an intent to make a film akin to Death Wish or akin to Vigilante that is a little bit more serious, a little bit more grounded, more of a this is a real crime drama that really deals with the issues that these other films only exploit. Blah blah blah. Because mm-hmm. there is a I mean, it's not a particularly gory picture. Uh, the right. you know, there's not a ton of violence. You know, the, again, it's not a Death Wish movie. It's not right. a Death Wish sequel. Jesus. And, you know, it does broach the racial context and economic context uh, of, of you know, urban vigilante pictures of the 1970s and 1980s. You know, it's, it's, it's a case of where, you know, you could almost think the deal of De Laurentiis was, he was a producer on this, right? I think he might have been, no. yeah. Yeah. If not, I apologize. Was, you know, again, trying to do, you know, what if Death Wish, but trying to be less exploitative. There's no vigilanteism um, to it. Well, they call it vigilante, yeah. but these people are out public eye, not hiding it. Like yeah. it's very public. Yeah, I mean it's it's basically a private protection. You know, it's what a private protection force or whatever. Organized militia. Yeah, basically it's yeah. more of a militia thing than you know a vigilante running in the night and gunning people down in the car. But again, I mean you know politically you know it was, I, I you know I I rewatched the first Death Wish before the remake came out. God, it was four years ago already. Mm-hmm. Got we lost two years, and what struck me about the film is that for one thing, it's a real movie. I mean, it doesn't you know the, the sequels are gore cartoons, but the original one is right, yeah, trying to be a drama. And to the extent that 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 the characters openly discuss the politics and play, and just you know, cavalier, we're two adults having a conversation about this kind of thing. By the way, that you know, not to sound like Grandpa Simpson, but you know, is feels foreign to today's action slash blockbuster marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for heaven forbid, you have a sympathetic character expressing an incorrect point of view. But that's definitely, this is, this is something else. Again, I, I think by a skewed way, the fact that it's less exploitative and less over the top almost makes it more quote unquote problematic than something like Vigilante, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Or something like Death Wish 3, which is, you know, almost, when you think of what a Death Wish movie is, Death Wish Three is it. I mean, it's basically at the end of that movie, they're you know him and the cop are running around like gunslingers of the old west, you know, basically living out you know a shoot 'em up video game from the eighties. Mm-hmm. It was Lethal Enforcers, the movie before Lethal Enforcers right. existed. <laughs> That's true. You know, Hogan's Alley or whatever. Yeah, because there's a one scene where he's like carrying the ammo and he's yeah the guy's carrying it for him walking through. Yeah, it is a first. It was oh. a shooter. Game. Which is what's interesting is that, you know, despite the relatively realistic as a stretch, but I, I would say heightened realism of the picture, you still have a film where the main bad guy is killed by a deadly water balloon. Right. Which kind of took me by surprise because, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, expl- you know, explosives poured into a water balloon, drops in a car, kaboom, mm. movie's over. And also, I mean, it ends with a, it's one of the few vigilante movies I've seen that ended with what I would consider a super duper mega happy ending. Yeah. No, there's no, you know, you know, you won, but at what cost? But I felt that way as a viewer. (laughs) It's really like, cause I don't know if they want us to root for Tom Skerritt in this movie. If they're trying to show that maybe he's gone over the top, I couldn't tell. And that was really ugly. Like the fact that like this leads 
because his vigilanteism leads to him starting a group which becomes their own thing and then he starts getting uh political people uh approaching him about stuff he's become popular and they convince him to run for office and then police are sharing favors with him and the like at the end like he is given the location of the guy he's been wanting the whole movie to get back at and for the police wanting some sort of political favors down the fu- down the line to yeah. go murder this guy as we hear right after that he won the election so he's yes. going to be we see him become corrupt at that point and that know that his path is only more of that and it's like wait were we supposed to be like it's all good now or i was like oh this is dark yeah this is like it's loosely based on a a real person Uh, a guy named yes uh, yeah anthony imperelli i believe was his name he was Mm -hmm. a community leader in the in the italian american community leader back in the 1960s don't they have like clips of him in the in the movie yeah 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 and long story short i don't want to bungle the history but he did achieve some level of political success partially as a result of basically, you know, mm-hmm. take back our community type activism yeah. that did arguably blend the border of the line into racially motivated vigilantism. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, this, this movie, like it starts out when he hits his group, it's like they're just going out looking for trouble. Yeah. Like they go into a bar and just harass the crap out of people. Like, and it's always where black people are hanging out. It's yeah. Which, to be fair, the movie absolutely comments on that. The movie does comment on it, and uh-huh. like Yafet Kodo plays a character that brings it to him, and then he proves it to him because there's a yeah. point where he brings two guys that probably did something to his mother. Was the was the where they stole yes. the mother's ring, and uh, he cut he, off her finger. He cut off her <laughs> finger to steal the ring, and he he takes it out on the black guy. Yeah. At which point things only get better for him, right? You know, he's already in the thick of the political camp. You know, the, I think it's a councilman, you know, gig. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that that scene leads to very little soul searching. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I mean, it, you know, it, you know, sign of the times, blah blah blah. To be fair, a lot of these urban vigilante pictures in the seventies and eighties were based on a mentality, whether true or not, that you know, big cities were really dealing with a rash of random violent crime, right? You know, there's a mugger on every street corner. There's a home invader in every shadow, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it goes uh, through even to like comedies like uh, the first vacation movie when they stop yeah. in, on the wrong side of St. Louis. Like, yeah. 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 That was, it was part of the whole uh, big city scary thing when I was growing up. Like, why would yeah. you want to live there? You're going to get like, like I, I, the pinnacle of those two, like there's a tri- trio of them that really affected me in childhood was. Jason takes Manhattan, Batman, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Made you feel like if you went to the big city and the sun was just about to tip and touch the ocean or or the the horizon, you were going to get mugged, kidnapped, beaten, held for ransom, raped. Who like those were all going to happen to you if you got caught out in the city. Uh, like just bad people everywhere. Like that was yeah. that was the vibe. And for um. for what it's worth. If you watch any documentary on the the glory days and the the hoo ha of the the shining nostalgia for Forty Second Street, it's not far off in New York yeah. for stuff. They talk about you know the movies that played on there and the attitude, but it's like, what's that? That doesn't all sound great, but the odd characters that would show up and stuff. But yeah, that, I mean, no, it's, was, it's definitely a movie of its time, and 
seeing Tom Skerritt in the role is interesting just because mm-hmm. you know, it feels like the kind of movie that should star Robert Forster. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I guess a younger Ed Asner. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, but it's, 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 a, it's an interesting artifact. I mean, they almost have Skerritt like when he like dressed and hairstyle and facial hairstyle to look like Bronson. Like it's, yeah. it's like, we want someone to mistake him on the poster, maybe see death oh, vengeance sure. and, and walk Absolutely. into this. Like it's, because this it's, is, I, I when did obviously I think between Death Wish two and three, I think three came out in eighty seven. Or did I should look this up? Yeah, <laughs> can't remember. Two, four came out in eighty seven. Two was once Canon started rolling, so it might have been. They might have been after this. They might have both been after Death Wish two and three. Yeah, 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 yeah. Death Wish three was eighty five. So this is right between the two. Death Wish two and Death Wish three. Mm-hmm. So this is before Death Wish was even. I mean, you had Vigilante. That was probably the only like. Yeah. Well, there, there's other ones of these because there was a uh, Exterminator. The Exterminator. That was about oh. a, a nom vet that comes and his town's gone to shit, and he takes it into his own hands. And, and everybody... obviously, the Eight Thousand Walking Tall movies. Yes. And you know, Miss Forty Five. That was that mm. was the eighties, right? Yeah. Yeah, Miss Forty Five. Yeah. That was the eighties. So yeah, there there was that already. The the sleazier or um, more exploitative ones were around. Uh, this was probably heading more in the drama, um, but even though they make little neat uniforms and have a car for their their little club, yeah, of... and that's that's what struck me as interesting about it. Is it almost it was almost trying to not be exploitative, mm-hmm. um, you know, for better or worse. Because on one hand, yay. On the other hand, you know, I, I was promised a trashier good time. Yeah, yeah. Well, why did a... that? Why did that? You know, shooting victim at the convenience store not die? I'm disappointed. Right. right. I want. <laughs> I want brains on the glass. Come on, yeah. Like, come on. If I if I wanted to watch a, a respectable vigilante movie, I'd watch uh, the Brave One with Jodie Foster. Right. And if I really want, you know, it's my, probably my favorite vigilante movie. I'm not going to even have comic books or any of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. Is uh, a J- James Wan's Death Sentence. Oh, okay, it's okay. Official. I mean, it's based on the book that was a sequel to the Death Wish book. Right. And without going into details, because it's worth seeing if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. It kind of deals with the whole wait, you just thought this gang was just gonna be okay with this thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is some blowback. And it's not even a matter of, you know, oh, you know, fighting fire with fire or oh no, your soul's corrupted. We're just like, what the hell do you think was gonna happen? Right. I love the uh, poked a bear. I like uh Jeremy Sonier's uh Blue Rootin from twenty thirteen. Oh, yeah. That was that was fantastic. That's very lifelike. It gives you a, a guy that's like a normal guy kind of doing it like and very clinical make yeah making human kind of decisions through it and yeah and it's just a really it was a really rad movie and you know the first death wish i think is good it's a good picture it's mm-hmm. interesting again because i think it's more of a drama than an action picture right and if you oh, could take right. up to it to the the sequels are just trashy yeah, nonsense part, i mean part two is probably the you know, it's a brutal i'll one. be honest i've only seen the first three and at least the third one's a cartoon. Yeah, third one's a cartoon. The, the second one is like right in the line of it's 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 grotesque. Yeah, the se- yeah the second one goes. The, the worst part it. is that it's it's it's. Am I allowed to discuss Death Wish two spoilers here? Yeah, it's fine. This is an the old way movie. that his daughter dies is actually funny. Oh, is she lands on the fence. Way. Yeah, she yeah. jumps out the window and lands on the fence like Wally Coyote. Yeah. And it's obviously very sad and very tragic in the context of the picture. Not supposed to be funny, but it is. It's the moment where the series changes to what it yes. is. It, it jumps the fence or doesn't jump the fence. 
<laughs> attempts to jump the fence and doesn't quite make it. Like like um, we, like we talk about a lot that it's the second movie in a film's series or a franchise yes. that really they all model off of. Absolutely, and you know, you know, again, it's, it's in the second one where it becomes less of a move, you know, a real movie and more of a hard genre, self aware franchise film. You know, mm-hmm. the Final Destination films. You know, right. Again, they're all, most of them are varying degrees of good, except for four. Four is like staring and watching a paint dry. Um, but the, the first one is a real movie. It actually has a lot to say about youth mortality and, and mm-hmm. you know, religion and, and all you know, the issues that it's dealing with. It, it's a real movie. Yeah. And ironically, as you know, and I'm sure many of the listeners slash viewers know, the original ending of that film was much more in line with the rest of the picture. Mm-hmm. In a way that I think would also have included any sequels. Yeah, true. So, you know, the ending that we got, which was where both the leads live, but one of the supporting characters goes out in a very cartoonish fashion, sort of set the tone for the sequels. Exactly, um, yeah. But anyway, I'm getting off script. I'll let you know. No, it's, it's fine. Um, when we do these... <laughs> Wait, Final Destination. Did it come out in a spring? That was a spring movie, wasn't it? I did listen to your your the, the out now special on those. By the way, that was fun. Oh yeah, those are that was that was we had the writer of yeah. the first one and uh, the story by on the second one. Yeah, he's yeah cool dude, Jeffrey Reddick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part five is awesome. Part five is great. Um, yeah. and excited. Hey, I'm I'm up for a six one. It's been a while. Oh yeah, um, whatever. I mean, it's. It's what it is. Yeah, the, yeah. Fighting back. This movie has something to say, but I don't know what, and I don't know if it realizes what it's saying or how it's. I'm saying not sure it. if it's something it should be saying. Yeah, it has examples of things that I would be like, "Oh, that's an interesting turn," but in what way are we supposed to see them? Like, I just it's really confusing and it's really, really ugly. But it's a movie you're probably not going to find, and I don't foresee anybody putting this out on a Blu-ray or a streaming service. Monday at a special time, a network television premiere. Robert Wagner, David Warner, and George Kennedy. We've got explosive decompression. No one can save the flight of the Concorde. Airport 79, starting at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. Here on ABC. While people were maybe thinking about going to see that in the weekend, here's what we were watching on television during this week at the top 10 Nielsen ratings. This is uh, one special is going to dominate this top 10. We talked about part one place last week, but the top rated show of this week was Marco Polo part three on NBC. Oh. Number two. Huh? No, I thought we were going to talk more about the secrets of the third Reich. Oh, no, that is done. That is done. Oh. Uh, number two is 60 Minutes on CBS. Number three, Coming Out of the Ice on CBS. Uh, at spots four and five were Marco Polo part four and part two, and uh, number six. Part three apparently is terrible. Yeah, part uh, part three was the one that part two really got everybody excited. They saw part three and were like, "I'm good. I'll <laughs> I'll put it. I'll tape it on my beta max." Number six, Three's Company on ABC. Number seven, Trapper John MD on CBS. Number eight, Fantasy Island has placed in the top ten on ABC. And number nine, Heart to Heart on ABC. Number ten, I believe this is a movie premiere, The Concord Airport 79 on ABC. Um, I will say, Love Boat placed at number 11, knocking on the door of the top ten for this week. Uh, I guess but, he will be talking about it next week. 
Yeah, but Heart to Heart, that's been a consistent top tenner here. I always I remember that show, but I don't, I don't remember ever hearing about it being this blazing ratings juggernaut, but I guess that's why I know of it so much. And I always, it's funny, Three Companies places a lot here, but I always think of that as like a 70s show for some reason, but we're in the early hey, 80s. Right. We're in the early 80s. There's a hangover of like where the late 70s and early 80s look alike, so a lot of people yeah. think a lot of 70s stuff is actually early 80s. There's that coming in. So we're not if, quite... If you've only got three networks, everyone's a winner. Yeah, everyone wins. Everyone places in the top 10. So that that's the, uh, the week. Some exciting shows. Uh, Marco Polo. Uh, everybody was up for that. I can't remember what that was, but or who was in it, but... Maybe I'll check it out sometime. Steve Martin, the funniest comedian who ever lived, is Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. No criminal is too tough for him. No pain is too great. No joke too disgusting. When Steve Martin finds out why, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid! Rated PG! I'll buy two tickets. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Our next movie is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, directed by Carl Reiner, written by Reiner, George Gype, and Steve Martin. It stars Steve Martin, Rachel Ward, Carl Reiner, and Alan Ladd, Barbara Stanwyck, Ray Milland, Ava Gardner, Burt Lancaster, Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, Veronica Lake, Betty Davis, Lana Turner, Fred McMurray, James Cagney, with Kirk Douglas, and Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe. Brandon, uh, many of these people are dead. Oh, no, it's a How film. How can that be? Not in this film noir parody with a detective uncovering a sinister plot. Characters from real noirs appear as scenes from various films are intercut. Uh, My God. Yeah, this is a, a, a stage for like, this is another, they did The Jerk before, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner. They also do The Man with Two Brains. Uh, they did this. And what was the other one they did? together oh it's the one with uh all of me all of me that was it it's interesting spot for steve martin is he just is following up pennies from heaven which is another uh golden age-esque hollywood movie so this is kind of his spot he's in right now with uh the box office with movies i thought this was a pretty funny movie i chuckled a bunch yeah i liked it quite a bit yeah i think it runs out of steam before the end yeah yeah um i think it's strongest in the first act when it's not relying as much on you know, intersplicing footage from other movies. And it's incredibly clever how it's done. Right. But it's also very obvious, you know, especially as it goes on, that the story is constructed for the sake of these out-of-context clips. Oh, yeah. It's so, a it's a really small movie. Like, it yeah. has a, a couple cast members, yeah, a couple locations, like, all shot in a studio. And it's a really small story, like, because it has to figure out how to do this but it's a tiny tiny movie and because i think it's because you don't buy the clips mixed in with it too much that it feels even smaller it's an interesting idea and it's sort of an example of a you know what does a parody look like when that that you know this was what two years after airplane this was Mm -hmm. two years before top secret and obviously the film is very fond of the 1940s detective pictures. Right. As well as the pre and post World War II melodrama contained within spoilers. It involves, you know, the end result involves Nazis. Mm-hmm. I think the first act I think is actually very funny because I think the film is funny on its own. Yeah. It's yeah. A standalone story that it's telling with, with, you know, clever dialogue and 
amusing visual cues. Well, if you, you know, just like Steve a, Martin, being yeah, Steve Martin is funny. The PI's got a sign on his office that says, you know, don't fall in love with the client. Yes. You know, so it sort of very gently pokes at the, 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 you know, in an Austin Bauer scream kind of way, it pokes at the genre films. Mm-hmm. And while the clip mixing is the reason for the season, it almost sort of gets in the way of the pretty good movie that's being done, before, you know, without relying on the clips. Right, right. But, you know, Martin is terrific in this. He's very committed. It's always interesting to see him with dark hair. Um, yeah. Well, it had it to be looks, dyed dark hair at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because I've, I've never seen his hair that dark. Any yeah. And, it, you know, he looks a lot younger just by default. You know, it's, it's a very game performance. And, it, and he never really wakes the material. He plays it as straight as it has to be played. Right. Uh, again, you know, not unlike the movie we just talked about. It's more of a time capsule than... than a film that holds up of its own accord. I mean, you said, you know, I want to watch a great Steve Martin movie in the eighties, you know, all of me yeah. or, you know, late seventies, the jerk or whatever, or, you know, many years, you know, Roxanne, this is more of a, a, it was certainly a one for me project. No, it's an experiment that yeah. wholeheartedly, they're like, um, what if we did, you know, I, yeah, I think it made like 18 million on a 9 million budget. So it did fine financially, but no, you know, as I said, what stuck out is how into it I was, I'll be honest, I had seen the film before and I mm-hmm. knew the gimmick, but I sort of, while I was watching it, I forgot about the gimmick. Yeah. So it took me a minute when he picks, you know, when he rings up and Humphrey Bogart picks up the flowers. Like, That's right. That's-, That's the whole point of this movie, right? Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. This is the movie that might. Like, oh, oh, it's Cary Grant. It's James Cagney. It's, you know, Veronica Lake. And it's it's pretty much everyone that you would know from that era, which makes it as interesting educational tool, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I almost enjoy what it was just being a. You know, a comedy, you know, a film noir comedy. Yeah. Just of its own accord. Yeah, it's, that's, it's a, that's the best thing. Steve is Martin and Carl Reiner and, forgive me, I forget the name of the young woman who's doing her best Barbara Stanwyck impression. Her name um, is Rachel Ward. Rachel Ward, who, I can say this, she's a smoke show. <laughs> and she kind of reminded me of, of well, Barbara Stanwyck in, uh, Barbara Stanwyck in the Lady Eve. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my, probably my favorite old-timey rom-com, just by default. I just, I love it. I think it's awesome. But anyway, it's fun. It's fun to watch, especially, you know, as a, you know, what is this and how does it play? But again, in terms of a, does it work as a standalone movie? Mm, more of a film school exercise. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I like it. I don't know. How double many bill times. with Vance, Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Right. Another movie that's absolutely useless as a standalone film, but is fascinating as an experiment. I think if you like, if you like, it- if you haven't seen it and you like Steve Martin's comedy, yeah. I think it's got enough. It goes on that enough to warrant watching the whole. It's not long, thankfully. It's not no, long. It's an eighty-nine movie. minute movie. Yeah, and it's a. I call this a heat check kind of film where it's like you wouldn't expect it to come from a comedy, but it's like, what can we do with our film technology messing around with editing? You know, experimental film, but it's a it's a technological heat check. I would even say they should go back to this film with the restoration processes we have now and re-edit those clips in so they look more seamless and see how it plays. I would be up for that. that I know it's a lot of work for a movie that yeah. people probably forget, but yeah. I take another... And I'm sure there's probably rights issues that exist now that did not exist. Oh, yeah. Ago. They probably lent it out for a theatrical... Well, I mean, it comes out... It's been out on yeah, Blu-ray on video like and stuff. Three, yeah. three times, so there's some sort of solidification, know. but they might need to go back in the vault for the new restoration. They might have the rights to those prints... And not these restaurants. That's it's a whole lot of other thing. But um, I have, I'd be all- curious to know the legal issues of how that came about because you know it's yeah. it's 
like half a dozen different studios. Yeah, I mean, they license out. They say, yeah. okay, we'll do that. And then Martin's like, yeah. oh, maybe I'll make a film for you down the road, <laughs> Universal or somebody like that. This was the final film for Edith Head, uh, yeah. the legendary costume designer. This is it. And it's kind of funny to throw back and she does this movie where a lot of her famous costumes came from these eras. Yeah. Uh, I will say I have a question with this movie. How is this different, resurrecting the dead for a movie like this, but CGI people are I had this very similar thought when I was watching this. Yeah. I was wondering to what extent this would inspire, you know, mostly online discourse about, you mm-hmm. know, is it respectful? Is it, you know, right. is it grave robbing? Is this any different from Gene Kelly doing a, you know, a vacuum cleaner commercial? Right. Yada, yada, yada. And honestly, I don't think it is. It's just, you know, this is what they could do back right. then. Because you could say and, that their their acting is not in the context of what they agreed to do when yeah. doing the part. Uh, they are propped up as active cast members in a film. And uh, I was just wondering, I couldn't find, I yeah. was wondering, like, is there, was no, there, you're con- absolutely right. was there a controversy of this in 1982? Uh, not that I've remember- found. Uh, yeah. But I'll be honest, I didn't look that hard. <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't been one who cares too much in yeah. that regard because. But I, 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 I agree with you in that if you're somebody, I'm not saying you, but generally, if you are somebody that takes issue with you know Carrie Fisher's cameo in Rogue One or Peter Cushing's cameo in Rogue One, especially, right? Then yeah, this is the same thing. Which I, I considered. I also called Rogue One a heat check movie. Where like, can yeah. we really do this? And because I saw. Peter, which plays on the big screen a lot better than home video. Uh, yes. I, I was like, whoa, this is this is pretty cool. Um, yeah. To me, I was like, that's a neat try. Yeah. It's, because, it's funny. I saw people like, oh, it's not perfect. Of course not perfect. It's been dead for 20 years. Yes. I know what I'm seeing isn't real. The guy <laughs> who starred in like a, a billion vampire movies, yeah. Frankenstein movies, stuff is going to hate this from the afterlife. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but I mean, in terms of how it looked, I was like, I. You know, it's as real as I would have expected. Right. I know it's not real because he's dead. Yeah. So, I mean. But they have, uh, the funny thing is they have no, like where that comes into play, they have no problem with, in the cartoon shows, it having an extreme likeness. Like to me that, it's the same. Like it's, that's what the character looks like. So if you draw him, that's the inspiration. (laughs) I don't know. There's a whole lot of like actors fearing not getting parts with that goes with that too. But you know what? You know, there's tons of movies you don't get parts for either, and the people who did it knew what they were getting into. But I was just wondering that I was like, this is the same thing. This it is- really is the exact same. Yeah, I have the exact same thought mm-hmm. when I was watching this, and, uh, and I wonder what kind of discourse this would bring up if someone tried to do something similar today. And if people are listening to this and getting mad at us, and then Twitter starts blowing up, I'm going to be like, what? Oh, it must have been the plaid episode because we are recording as i rem- i must i must remember we're recording this it's january still uh but this is a drop Humphrey bogart can ro- continue rotting in hell while his estate collects <laughs> residuals from dead men don't wear plaid right exactly that's my title <laughs> uh, you know complain about it it's his best best appearance as marlo of all time so uh you know, uh, this would also inspire the hell like this is what muppet babies would end up being that cartoon was a lot of yeah. this stuff um, but that's because you're oh. cute and fun. So, hey, resurrecting the dead. Got to be. Well, they'll make your dreams come true. Right, right, right. But yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a weird recommend if you recommend it. Because, yeah, it's a totally, it's a shtick that doesn't, It yeah, you said runs out of steam. Um, but Steve Martin's quite good. And yeah, the movie's better without the clips, honestly. Yeah. 
you know, it, you know, obviously this is, you know, six years earlier, but you know, it doesn't pass the Roger Rabbit smell test, which, you know, Roger Rabbit is a compelling and interesting story with or without the gimmicks. Right. But that's also but that, a heat that's check one of the greatest, movie. And exp- that's also yeah. one of the greatest movies of all time. So, it is. You know. It is. I just watched it again <laughs> recently and I'm like, yeah. man, we don't, we talk about, but we don't hold it up like we should. Well, because unfortunately, and, you know, for better or worse, it was a one and done. The same reason nobody talks about ghosts anymore because it didn't turn into a giant franchise. True. Yeah. Uh, Roger Rabbit and Roger Rabbit and Zemeckis is over, always yeah. overlooked as like little Spielberg. Like, and he did such, that was so. Zemeckis is like Roger Rabbit was like almost like his like Star Wars his yeah. his like ET that where he pushed it after getting building himself up to like what's this big thing and I don't think yeah well I think part of it is and you know obviously he did fine but especially after Roger Rabbit the groundbreaking special effects movie work that he did was in terms of making stuff invisible you know yeah. you don't notice the incredible effects work in Contact. And Forrest you Gump. Hopefully, yeah. don't yeah. You hopefully don't notice the incredible effects work in Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's yeah. not something like you know Star Wars or even you know Back to the Future. I even guess, today, with like the you've walk. never seen before. He still yeah, does the walk. Yeah. yeah, that was amazing. First yeah. two thirds is boring as hell, but that third act, holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I like Zemeckis. Uh, he's you know do his thing. I mean, we were you able like... to see it in IMAX at the time? No, I, I didn't. I, I got the Blu-ray for review, but I can. I still I appreciate this. It worked. Worked. It worked. Fair enough. I can. I can. I can. My mind can go. I bet I would have felt like this watching it a bit. I would. Well, I'll tell you one of the all time holy shit movie going experiences. It was my second weekend in LA, living in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, the Polar Express and IMAX 3D. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. I a... mean, it was just mind blowing because the the leveling up in terms of what I felt was possible in terms of mm-hmm. 3D film was like you know it really was a game changer. Yeah, I know everybody says everything else is a game chip, but that really was like, holy shit, this is the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it proves I mean but even that film is still fun on 2D. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I recently I took in Dune in 70 millimeter IMAX, and then I also uh watched it at home on 4K Ultra HD, and that one doesn't even have the cut for IMAX footage. It still looks like when you have talent behind the camera that knows how to shoot movies. It still plays at home, like you just like feel how big it is. Yeah, like, I just on a whim, I watched the first act of Gravity about a week ago on HBO Max, mm-hmm. and I had to force myself to turn it off and go to bed. And yeah. it's still, it's still freaking, it's still awesome. Yeah, yeah, that movie, um, that was a trip. That's one of my favorite in the yeah. theater with the three D. Me too. Oh gosh, that was just you just got that. That's the thing I I think works so well is like movies that take place in space because you're in a dark yeah. room already and because like I I have loved just the feeling of like gravity and you know like scenes from you know, Avatar and uh, like Interstellar just like look like ooh like you're just like dropped into space and you know like even the Star Wars movies over in IMAX just looking at the yeah. dots in space looks so cool but. Um. But no, if you know, it's, it's 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 yes, there are movies that are enhanced and improved by the technology and or the manners in which you see them. But if the movie works, the movie works. Yeah, true. 
Very true. I mean, I, I've seen av- the last act of Avatar in an airplane, and it still rocks. I mean, yeah, like we, as much as we want to be snot, snots about, you know, seeing it in the theater, I always am recalled to an article I read called, I watched the greatest films of all time on Pan and Scan VHS. Yeah. Which I saw The Godfather, Pan and Scan VHS. Yeah. I saw Lawrence of Arabia, Pan and Scan VHS. Star Wars, Pan and scan yep. VHS. So I sound like a hypocrite because those movies stuck with me. But I will say there are movies I didn't care for that when I, they finally came on to like proper Blu-rays and stuff like that or seeing a theater, I either found appreciation for or it grew when seeing that. So 2001. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I always respected what, you know, obviously what it must have been like, mm-hmm. but I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters until the re-release a couple years ago. Gotcha. Uh, and I went to the local IMAX and I sat as close as was comfortable and like, ah. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, that is, you get it. One of these, one of these days I okay. will take the night off and see that in the theater. There you go. Yeah, that, uh, the, the, the work of Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci, I was never eh about. And then now they're two of my favorite filmmakers just because of actually seeing yeah. what I was supposed to and the proper cuts because that's a whole other thing with, <laughs> with uh, chopping them up to sell to America. Now let's turn to the Billboard album chart and check out the 10 biggest LPs in the land this week. Sweet America, the U.S. top 40, Casey Kasem. Let's see what he has in store for us with these things move up and down this week get down on it is our number 10 from cool and the gang number nine i did it in a minute hall and oats falling a little bit don't you want me enters the top 10 by the human league like don't you want, you want me, baby? me baby i was in a no. cocktail bar. yeah that much is true yes uh, <laughs> oh we got it's just a hit number one, and it has just fallen. It's got Chariots of Fire, main titles by Vangelis, down to number seven. Quick uh, kill. And this one always screws me up when I'm reading the top ten. I cannot wait for it to leave, and this week's the worst. Number six, 65 Love Affair by Paul Davis. Uh, <laughs> number five, moving up, Four Spots, The Other Woman by Ray Parker Jr. There's something strange in the other woman's hair. <laughs> Who are you going to call? The other woman. Number four. I'm a detective. <laughs> number four. That other woman's number is 8675309 Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone. Moving up one spot. Number three is moving up three spots. I've never been to me by Charlene Duncan. And number two. Don't talk to strangers by Rick Springfield. He's creeping up. That Rick. He's like, I'm not just Jesse's girl. And then staying at number one for the second week in a row. Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. So it's his second week at number one. That's our Casey Kasem's top ten. In the future, cities will become deserts. Roads will become battlefields. And the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. Starts May 21st at the Man's Vogue Hollywood in Man's National Westwood. And now to the movie you've probably all been waiting for us to talk about. Sold in America as The Road Warrior, but when the credits play, it says Mad Max 2. Directed by George Miller, written by Terry Hayes, Brian Hennant, and George Miller. Starring Mel Gibson, Bruce Spence, Virginia Hay, and Emily or Emil Minty in the post-apocalyptic 
post-apocalyptic Australian wasteland, a cynical drifter agrees to help a small, gasoline-rich community escape a horde of bandits. So this is probably one of the most impressive blockbusters of the era. Um, Maybe not appreciated as much right in the moment. It was appreciated, but it's oh, legacy. It yeah, it got good. Leonard Malton is a humongous fan of this movie. As was Ebert. As was Ebert. Uh, this he is then one... like part three even more. Yeah. Uh, this was it, one of the I, most dangerous looking movies ever made as well. Yeah. I Fury Road is an impressive feat all its own, but that one at least had digital technology to take out bungee cords. It was probably a lot safer to do than this. <laughs> probably. Probably. This um, is... And you were talking earlier about where, where a sequel sort of sets the template for a franchise. Right. Yeah. This is when people think Mad Max, they don't think Mad Max. They think Most the people world... saw this first. Yeah. Most people. And um, the weird story of Mad Max is that like, that first movie is so weird. It plays like that unnecessary like prequel we've been seeing yeah. like for so many years that that you don't need that. And it's Mad no, Max it actually, Origins. it actually, yeah, Mad Max Origins. It actually came first, and yeah. feel it has the full on template for boring generic white male hero drama that comes before movie you really like. Like it. It's insane. Uh, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's a solid three-star picture. And it's impressive and it certainly for what was they a do. Trendsetter in terms of, you know, sort of, obviously it didn't invent the apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic drama, but it sort of set the template, especially with Mad Max, you know, whichever one you watch first. What I find interesting about Mad Max is that society is still kind of hanging on by its fingernails. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain, you know, children of men mentality where, you know, it's not the road. Right. Or, you know, the road warrior or water world. You know, society is still hanging in there. But there are obviously cracks in the seams. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, up until the last act of the picture of Mad Max, it's basically a relatively conventional, you know, police actioner. Right. And until, it, it, you know, does it, it yeah. start the, the wife dies? No. Oh, now I'm an action uh, hero. Well, I mean, I'm sure that trope has been around since the dawn of cinema. Yeah. You know, it, Birth of a Nation comes to mind. Oh, right, right, um, right, right. But no, I mean, in terms of you know that kind of action and that kind of yeah, because the '80s was full of that. Yeah, so yeah. it certainly was. You know, it may have been the Michael Jackson moonwalker of that particular creature. Okay, where it didn't invent it, but it certainly you know made it popular and, and right. was identified with it. Gotcha. But. And then, you know, what, what, two, three years later, you have the Road Warrior, which is a radically different picture. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's for one thing, you know, the character of Max, played by Mel Gibson, is almost feral. Mm-hmm. You know, he has more or less lost his mind. You know, his wife and, and baby have died as a result of the events of the first picture. You know, before of which he's a regular, normal police officer. Um, yeah, he's he so far of, gone. It's almost as if he knows that happened, but doesn't remember how to feel about it happening. Yes, like he's yes, so far it's, gone. It's, it's an interesting, it's a good portrayal by Gibson on that to, yeah. to showcase that just physically. Was he dubbed in this one or just the first one? Uh, the first one's just dubbed, know. dubbed period. Yeah. He, I mean, I believe they have it with his voice and, and with somebody else too. Oh, so nice. there's multiple dubbings of that oh. first one. So you can hear it with his voice. I believe if I'm yeah. wrong, I'm sorry, listeners, but 
Mel Gibson obviously comes with such baggage these days, but at mm-hmm. the end of the day, he was a great actor then, and frankly, he's still a very good actor. And that's one reason why he's done this work. And one of the most gigantic yeah. stars of is, yeah, if, oh yeah. I mean, if, by by the late you know the mid nineties, he was so big that he was the single biggest selling point for Disney's Pocahontas. Right. Just because he was playing a, you know, the love interest in that picture. Right. You know, ironically, his last starring vehicle before the fall was N. Night Shyamalan Signs, which was mm-hmm. his biggest worldwide grocer. Right. I think his biggest domestic grocer, too, offhand. It did 228 domestic for 05 worldwide on a $70 million budget in summer mm-hmm. 2002. Now, obviously, that film wasn't just Mel Gibson's capability. You know, you had M. Night Shyamalan coming off of uh, Unbreakable The Sixth Sense. You had a very obvious play to the faith-based community. Mm-hmm. You know, but you've seen signs. It's basically, it's a yeah. very subtext, ex-religious melodrama. Right. Even call, you know, I even call it his Walmart picture. <laughs> um, which, you know, I, again, I think it, it rocks. I think it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie. Yeah. But it certainly is a film that is attempted to be more mainstream after the initial reaction to Unbreakable was slightly more divided. Hey, I'm the guy who's always been there for the village. So, of course, I like signs. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I'm getting way off script here. Right. Um, this is the beginning of Mel Gibson's career as a leading man, not the end of it. Right, right. Um, this is this is like uh You've got twenty years. This is like step two, like because there's the the noticing him with some Australian pictures. This is like, okay, he could be a movie star, and then Lethal Weapon just Yeah, Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon Two, which was the first, I would argue the first modern breakout sequel. Right. That it vastly outperformed its predecessor despite just being another sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't a case like Terminator 2 or Rambo 2, where it was, you know, a huge mega event movie, even outside of the franchise. Right. Well, this was just, oh, it's definitely the weapon movie. I love the first one. And they all go see it. Um, you know, the John Wick of its day. Right. Um, but this one, it's, it's with the caveat that I think they're all good. And I'm probably going to watch all of them again between now and when this episode is actually going to air. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The third one quite a bit. No, I that's good. A, it, I might be in a situation where I like each one more than the next. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know where the rep came from that third book because every time I've gone to it, like I'm like, this is it, it's the thing I like about the series. None of them really are the same. No, at all. And I like um, that. Like, uh, I think, and again, I, I you know, I, I, I say without you know knowing for sure. I think the third one was so different from the second one. Mm-hmm. And you had the Tina Turner angle, which made it feel more mainstream, I guess. And it was PG thirteen, so you had this this right. Although really, none of them are that. You know, but yeah, they're violent, and one, three, and four, or one, two, and four deserve you know, earn their R ratings. Right, but, it goes the route that Conan did that we talked yeah. about last week, and then they're like, yeah, maybe the kids want to see this. Yeah, uh, but I would argue that the third one isn't aggressively less gr- gruesome than the, the second one. It might've just been accidentally rated PG. Like they just yeah. made the movie they made and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll even with a young kid. And that always annoys people. Mm-hmm. Um, kids. There's know. more. <laughs> yeah. But the kid's fine in this one. That's fine. Yeah. Watching this one for the first time in a while, it almost feels like a dress rehearsal for Fury Road. Right. In that it certainly shares more in common with Fury Road than say, Beyond Thunderdome or Mad Max. Right. Or maybe I should reverse that. Fury Road, if you want to say which Mad Max movie is it playing off of, it's The Road Warrior. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, 
having said that, the Road Warrior basically invented an entire modern genre. Because mm-hmm. again, when you think of post-apocalyptic action movies of that nature, you think of Road Warrior. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, again, Waterworld, or uh, that's the most obvious example because that that basically was a you know a re- Oh yeah. I, I mean, that's a, I surprised they didn't get sued rip off of the Road Warrior. Yeah. Well, I I, 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 like the the aesthetic for the Road Warrior would be knocked off countlessly by Italian schlock cinema, but yes. it, it was it was always the aesthetic. It was never the challenge of making one of these, or the triumph, or the stunts, or like the yeah. the craft, the 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 talent there. It was always just the look of it was ripped off. And it's obviously a very lean, very focused, very you know, frankly, it's character light, plot light. It's mm-hmm. all about visceral momentum and movement, but obviously one reason it works is because it does tell a story, it does develop character during its action scenes. Yeah. Well, it's got that story people love that anti-hero come to town, doesn't give a shit about anybody yeah, but himself, yeah, and, and then, yeah, and then gives it all for these people at the end of the day. And there's a yeah, lot of... that's Yeah. There's a good turn in the movie like towards the end like with where the big chase ends up and the result of what everybody gave for a yes uh a decoy like yeah it's a a wonderful reveal (laughs) it's got a lot of memorable like characters lines of course but it's just that even watching today the action work that the the coverage that they get is like astounding that they got like how long did this take of getting in there people not dying just (laughs) minor detail yeah the stunts just it's it's insane to yeah. watch this thing is then and still now impressive. it's a remarkably staged action adventure mm-hmm. still cut when well, i was yeah. when i was growing up when people you know when critics or, or film nerds you know one of the best american you know hollywoodish action movies of all time it'd be you know raiders road warrior french connection mm-hmm. depending on how old you were die hard right um well in these movies you can so all it was always it was always in the top 10 yeah the the camera is its own character in the movie, and you can see what's going on. It cuts yep. for intensity, but isn't overly cut. Like you get to soak in and watch what's going on and feel it. And then I don't know somewhere, cutting fast became the thing where it would work for certain movies, but d- that didn't have to be for all of them. But um, it's just so nice to see. And Fury Road knows this. Fury Road, you see what you see everything you. Um, get to enjoy it, soak it in. But there's so many action movies that come out after, you know, Born Supremacy that you just like, what is it? Like, I guess it's supposed to be a feeling in the theater, but you watch and you're like, well, I mean, you know, obviously Born Supremacy, there was a reason why. Yeah, not everybody can be Paul Greengast. He's really Captain Phillips. I I don't like Born Ultimatum. I think it, it suffers from, you know, being like that for no good cause. And also, I mean, it's the same friggin' movie. Well, yeah, that's what they do. They, like, I stupidly Born... watched the Bourne Supremacy right before seeing the Ultimatum. I yeah. mean, I, obviously, I had seen the Bourne Supremacy, but rewatching, you know, Thursday night and then Friday night going to see Bourne Ultimatum was like, this is this is a remake. This is the exact same movie. Well, su- Supremacy <laughs> Ultimatum and Jason Bourne are all, it, if you like the yeah. exercise, that's what it is. It's, yeah. it's the spy slasher type thing. Like, if you like, if you oh. like to see him set up and knocked down by that one guy, boom, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but it did, you know, even then it threw me for a loop because, you know, see, we love the James Bond films, but they do try to differentiate themselves from each other. Mm-hmm. Obviously, There's- same way with the Mission Impossible pictures. Um, I think one of the issues with the Bourne series is that they just keep trying to recapture the genie in the bottle that was the Bourne supremacy. 
Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well, also forgetting that the Born Identity is pretty damn great, too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that it's made by that same guy, too. Like, yeah. Uh, that's why I, I mean, I've always liked the first one. Uh, it was more my wheelhouse, but I, I like supremacy too. I, I have fun with the Jason Bourne movies, but yeah, no, it's, it's no surprise, no secret that, you know, ultimatum's the same Bourne, Jason yeah. Bourne's the same. The chems one is a, a thing that happened. And <laughs> that always, what abused me about that one is like, it was written and directed by Tony Gilroy, mm-hmm. who was famously unhappy about how, to what extent he was involved in the Bourne ultimatum. So he goes off and makes the spinoff. Basically, retcons born supreme, born ultimatum, but that born was a loser. Nothing he did matters, and evil won. Yes, <laughs> which is a dick move, but I kind of respect it. Yeah, that's um, funny stuff. <laughs> but yeah, no, this movie. I mean, everybody, people listen. Most of you have probably seen the Road Wire. It's highly recommended. Um, I, I still find yeah, it's so funny. Like, did people get confused when they went into the theater? And saw the road warrior and the credits play and it says Mad Max Two. Be like, did I, did I sit in the wrong? Like, how? What was the awareness on Mad Max I when this know, came but out? I have you to know? imagine. You know, you look at the poster. It's got Mel Gibson with the shotgun walking in the desert, and like, but that's one of the field. You yeah. see him pretty damn quickly, so it's not like you think you're in the wrong yeah. movie. Well, but people would go. I mean, people would go see sequels with that. I mean, it was a lot. Yeah looser uh, audience going like and yeah one of the rules is you didn't have to have seen us the previous one to enjoy a sequel right and like, you don't need to see police academy 2 to understand police academy 3 a lot of them this movie Although it helps yeah this movie i mean this was a common thing so when people find it weird watching movies from the 80s and 90s recaps were a thing this movie mm-hmm. recaps that first movie so you know right where you are um and like a lot of the like friday the 13th <laughs> would show the end of the previous movies in case you aren't going to be able to keep up and the rocky films of course made that an art form yeah, yeah. so uh, this was because oh. not everybody had vhs karate kid did that karate kid did that yep um yeah. yeah pretty much it was a horror trope that did that but you know you're making a sequel like well some of these people might not have seen the last one let's get them up to speed and you know because it was like well it has this aired on tv yet um has it aired on tv that people have yet and so it was just uncertain, and because yeah, VHS stuff wouldn't be a big part of everyone's lives until towards the end of the decade. Yeah, but, and you know, to a certain extent, sequels were not, especially outside of horror. I would argue sequels were not that prevalent to the point where they were enough of a well-known type of picture that you would expect everyone to have done their homework. Yeah, only Stallone sense. seemed interested yeah. in them. He was the only non-horror yeah. guy that seemed interesting. Because in unfortunately, sequels. none of his non-Rocky Rambo moves actually were hits up to a point. Right. Uh, other than maybe Cobra up until the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cash made money, but it was really expensive. Yeah. And then um, like, like Cameron made the sequel kind of like prestigious. Like it was like, no, yeah, don't he's the have one that to be. Screwed, you know, he, re- he accidentally wrecked the entire, you know, I, I ran about this all the time. Yeah. It's because of his sheer success of James Cameron's specific sequel sort of let Hollywood think that anyone could do that. And right. that any vaguely successful genre slash sci-fi fantasy property could spawn a, you know, a big breakout sequel and an ever monetizable franchise. And that's obviously not the case. Curse you, Cameron. Right. So that's yeah, not th- true. we love Cameron. We do love Cameron. <laughs> uh, he got a hard on for, first he got a hard on for Cameron. Who does it? And why not? Scream two. <laughs> As we wrap up, we're going to take a look at the box office report, which looking at the movies, yes, looking at the movies for this week, 
and looking at the box office report does not add this one was fun because i was like this isn't what the legacy of these movies you would think how the box office went for them uh the the, i mean the last little whorehouse in texas isn't an ever ever great classic of our time right exactly but just yeah just looking at these i go oh all right wow that's not what i knowing how well revered and where these movies are people were looking for something else this weekend um Obviously. Are you ready uh, there, Scott? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. All right. So let's run down the box office for the weekend. Uh, the, the top film for the second weekend in a row was Conan the Barbarian, which earned an additional $6.9 million, a 28% drop, despite or because of adding 288 screens. It was playing in approximately 1,685 theaters. And again, I'm assuming at this point, this wasn't a time where you were on more than one screen per theater. So when I say it's in 683 theaters, I'm also assuming it's 1,683 screens. Its total was 20 million after 10 days. Uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Play was the top uh, newbie of the weekend. It opened with $4.3 million and 882 screens. A perfectly decent showing for a low-budget, high-concept, star-driven comedy. It would eventually gross approximately $18.2 million on a budget of, I believe, $9 million. And then coming up at number three, the unkillable Porkies. Dude, this just does not stop. I need to watch Porkies at some time so I can, you know, actually talk about it. It's like the Beverly Hills Cop of 82. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, so Porkies would make another $2.9 million, uh, dropping less than 1% from weekend nine. It had earned just under $80, $80 million by the end of its 10th weekend. It would eventually make $105 million in North America alone. Again, you know, I think you mentioned this last week, you know, despite being a bigger grossing picture than a lot of well-known snobs versus slobs slash R-rated raunch comedies, it doesn't have nearly the reputation slash legacy. Probably because it's, you know, it's a bunch of, you know, it's teenage horniness, blah, blah, blah. But whatever, that's a conversation for another day. Actually, after I actually watched the movie. Uh, Sword and the Sword and Sorcerer, 2.1. You skipped skip number four. Oh, shit. Minor detail. The Road Warrior opened at number four on 704 theaters with $2.527 million. The picture would eventually go on to earn a perfectly solid $23.6 million domestic. Um, next weekend, slight spoiler, is Memorial Day weekend. It would add four screens for 708 theaters and would earn an additional 2.39 million over the three-day wait one two three the four-day portion of the Memorial Day weekend. So yeah, small opening, small budget, small reward. I mean, they made a third one, so they were obviously happy with it. Sword of the Sorcerer did 2.1 million dollars. It was up to 14.4 at that point. A fighting back opened. Is that right? This is the mm-hmm. second. Yeah, that's the second widest movie of the weekend behind Conan and Porky's. Yeah. It debuted on 1,104 screens, made $1.624 million from Paramount Pictures, and it would tap out at $3.35 million, never reaching more than 1,100 screens. I wonder if that movie had Oscar hopes for Tom Skerritt or something in that, too. I wonder. I do know that it would lose 300 screens in the second weekend. Yeah, it's not doing well. Especially back then was unusual. Any other... Uh, Chariots of Fire is at 51 million. Victoria, Victor Victoria is at 17 and change. 
but all Ron is right. His stick is picking around us, but a 41% drop mm-hmm. for a $883,000 weekend for a $2.967 million total. And again, when I keep reading off these, these minuscule opening weekends, I just get PTSD flashbacks to September 2020. Uh-huh. And uh, Annie would open in 14 screens. For a whopping five hundred and ten thousand dollars, giving it a thirty-six thousand dollar per screen average. Uh, it would, as you mentioned correctly, would go wide mid June somewhere. It's uh, mid June mm-hmm. where it would expand from it, for the first four for the first month. It was in fourteen screens, and then it would expand to thirteen hundred. Excuse me, eleven hundred screens, where it would make it a five million dollar wide release opening weekend. Uh, Paradise dropped out of the top 10 from this week. That's a shock. Already gone. And I noticed, like, so now eight of the top 10 have at least made a million dollars. That was not the case when we started. Like, I think it was, like, yep. top six or five made at least a million. And now people are starting to head to the movies. Thank you, Tom and Jerry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Force of Abbott. No, thank, thank you, the word of mouth of Porky's. <laughs> oh, there's a there's a hole in the showers, and he and he takes his he takes his wiener, and he well you know, and the girls see it, and they, uh, well you just gotta you just gotta oh man, and they they bully this nerd kid to try to have sex. It is so funny, Porky's. Except what happened when the nerds actually got power? Maybe they had a point. <laughs> that's a deeper darker conversation for another day right right but anyway uh i i apparently do need to watch i've never seen porkies it's just one that's never been on my radar we're gonna have a bonus coverage of porkies one of these on one of these (laughs) that's um do people uh, want porkies do you want us to talk about it we'll see maybe we've already done it by the time you've heard it so (laughs) and that's pretty much it in terms of box office news because, you know, again, as is usually the case, you know, at this point in time, you know, you have a handful of openers and a couple holdovers and everything else is basically, you know, over under a million dollars. But that was OK because movies were cheaper. They played longer. You had, you know, especially you would start to get a viable post theatrical afterlife right. beyond just selling them to cable TV and regular TV. Were dollar um, theaters a thing back then or were tickets still pretty cheap that there that wasn't a. I have to assume second runs were still a thing. That's a good like question. Dri- probably drive-ins for sure. Yes. Second run theaters. And, and I imagine, yeah, yeah, because you, you, know, you had, there is not much here on second run theaters. I'll have to look that up. That's actually a good question. I do know, you know, basically Titanic was the last movie to get a halfway decent second run play. Yeah. I do know, like, I mean, like a lot of times, like the theaters would look at the, like dead weekends or like low Okay, yeah. and they, or if they didn't have a movie to put out for other, like, hey, let's throw Star well, Wars back in the theaters for a well, couple weeks. Well, that's what IMAX has been doing for for the last several weeks. Yeah, you got to go see you know, Venom. Let there be carnage. Yeah, Venom like, was yeah. back in IMAX for a weekend. And then No Time to Die was back mm-hmm. in IMAX. Now the tragedy Miss Beth is getting an IMAX run for a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, it's I didn't see it in IMAX, but I saw it sitting way too close at the Burbank. Gotcha. It looks great in theaters. I imagine it would look very cool in IMAX. Gotcha. If you're so inclined. Which uh, is months ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Shit, <laughs> that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun with this. Like, why are they? I'm looking at my show times. It is. 
<laughs> oh, what is this? The, the weekend of the 21st? What, what are we really talking about now? Downtown yeah. Abbey? Downtown yeah. Abbey, the Deadly Art of Illusion? Looks great, um, IMAX. Oh, man. Oh. I can't uh. believe Maggie Smith didn't die again. Yes. Anyway. But, but yeah, that, that'll do it for this uh, weekend. The last, or, uh, sorry, this weekend of May. Uh, Scott, uh, as always, appreciate you joining me. Before we go, uh, let people know where they can keep up with you. Forbes.com. Uh, please Google some variation of Forbes, Scott Mendelson, the ticket booth. My Twitter feed is at Scott Mendelson. And that's pretty much it for social media. I have a Facebook account. That's mostly for cat pictures and kid pictures and, you know, non-scandalous takes. Exciting cat pictures and kid pictures. Yes. Uh, all right. <laughs> and I have a Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Scott and I will be back next week where Rocky stops a young, hungry underdog's rise to fame. Uh, Raul Julia makes an art form of escaping. William Shatner finds himself in a slasher movie. Uh, that and more as we continue the last weekend of May in the summer of 1982. Until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.